Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan, a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So uh, this week, just Esther and Revelation. Not that the, either of those two books are light in terms of how to interpret. And so, um, but we begin and kick off with the book of Esther and uh, a story that uh, for the Jews gets read every year in March and, or late February um, as, as part of a festival. There's a whole festival of Purim. And they would read this book every year. And um, it's a book that's filled with um, kind of unique details and storytelling. Um, there's characters that sort of do things that you don't totally expect them to do in the moment and different ways that the king and Esther and Haman and others that all sort of act. And um, the real difficulty, and we re- we kind of covered this before with some of the other books, is, is when you kind of break up a book that's probably building on themes that sort of get unpacked towards the end and, um, and the difficulty of sort of wrestling through this podcast when important stuff will happen next week that tie into just moments this week. And so, um, but, um, it takes place. It's written sort of, uh, in some ways uh, about a history of Jews that are still in, in the empire of Persia that have not returned home. Yeah. So one of the big questions that we're asking in this book as you read it is, is God still present among his people even when they are in exile? And even in some regards, may be considered unfaithful for not returning to Israel. We don't know all the nuances behind that. But uh, is God still present among his people in Persia? Yeah. And so um, we kick off by being introduced to the king and the details that are were even told right from the get go are sort of like a little bit peculiar. Um, and we're kind of shown this king who you got to imagine uh, Persia that has taken over uh, for Babylon has inherited all the lands of Babylon and more um, is one of the strongest empires in history up to this point. And uh, with 120 something, I think providences within it spread out all over the place. And so the king uh, as a good show of power and a culture of, of Persia invites people from providences and kings and army leaders and all this kind of stuff to a place or throwing off a party, being able to show off the empire and the excess. And, and, and don't worry. I mean, this happens in all cultures. It even happens in Israel's history. Solomon kind of does this where it's like, Hey, come see all the beauty that is Jerusalem. And so, um, and for this king, it's the same thing. Who wouldn't want to be part of this glorious Persia? And, uh, this king is representative of, of the nation in a lot of ways. Um, and, in some ways the the queen is a representation of the female embodiment. Um, And so if he's trying to show off just sort of the beauty of, of uh, Persia itself, he would also desire to show off the beauty of his wife. Yeah, so this is kind of giving us a setting. If we imagine following a story arc in the book of Esther, we're seeing the situation here, this really elaborate party. Uh, I just kept thinking of The Great Gatsby as I was reading it. It's very uh, a very Gatsby-ish sort of scenario. Yeah. And the king desires to showcase his queen, but um, to a room full of men, one of the things that he will desire to highlight is not just her beauty, but probably her sexuality. Um, and so some of the language here um, likely implies that she was maybe paraded, even possibly nude in front of all of these men, um, and or at least desired to be paraded in that way, but she refuses. Um, and the other men become sort of almost suspicious. If this woman could refuse the king, what's to say our women won't refuse our the us? And so the king um, knows knowing this sort of dilemma uh, ends up removing the crown from Vashti, his wife. There's a lot of irony in this story here. We've just seen this king who has power over all of these nations and all these things, and yet he can't even control <laughs> the queen. He, he doesn't even have power over her choices. And so it points us back to, again, and kind of our first reminder that only God is all-powerful. Only God is the one who truly contains all the power, is omnipotent. 
yeah, we find out the king uh, eventually over a little bit of time starts feeling a little lonely. And so uh, they rig this sort of beauty contest, which would be underselling it. Uh, there's a harem, there's preparation, all this that's totally implying that there's um, that this is a performance of one night with the king um, that to show whether these women can satisfy him, uh, not just with their physical beauty, but sexually. And so... Um, it, which is peculiar, even reading through the story in history. Uh, most kings are going to marry for um, political gain. They'll they'll marry neighboring groups, and or, or they'll want to keep a pure line of Persian ancestry. And so, um, to to end up marrying a queen with no clear history uh, and no clear political motivations is a bit unique in the story. Um, and Esther has a bit of Joseph overtones. Even here, we start uh, getting a sense of some of the language here of how she gets elevated into her position. Um, and you got to imagine this, that makes a lot of sense written to a people, um, who didn't go back to Israel. And, and just as Joseph is learning to persevere and be obedient in Egypt, what does it look like for these people to persevere and be obedient in Persia and to interact with that? And, um, and Esther will have some shrewdness in the storyline, just like Joseph does, uh, throughout it all. Um, and, and at some point this king is going to be smitten by her, but um, she has refused to reveal who, where she comes from or, or, or her background. And and once again, this is a, a unique sort of group in history. Uh, most groups would want to conquer um, and require people to um, assimilate in a lot of ways, but um, Persia didn't function that way. Persia was much more uh, totally okay for you to keep your culture, even keep your gods, as long as you pledge allegiance to Caesar or to um, the king of Persia. And so um, for him to choose a wife that could have been sort of an any woman. Um, she's not representative of any single group would have uh, in some ways even represented pluralistic Persia by her uh, non-identity um, would have um, possibly even intrigued the king uh, at this point. So there's some interesting comparisons and contrasts we can do here and that we uh, know that the Jewish culture and scripture that we read has a high value for chastity and purity. And we watch Esther move into this environment where she's forced to defy those religious values uh, and have her body used for the pleasure of the king, which in Jewish culture is going to result in shame and impurity. Now, Esther probably did not have a choice as to enter this sort of beauty contest. That wasn't her option, Uh, but she did choose more or less how to proceed through it. Uh, so we see this kind of going on and compare and contrast it to Vashti, who refused to kind of be paraded as, and she was not Jewish in the chapter before, which is kind of interesting to think about. But ultimately, what we see here is kind of a foreshadowing. We see God divinely positioning Esther uh, so she can uh, he can use her to deliver Israel when the time comes. And we find out um, Mordecai, we're introduced to him as a character in some ways, though we do find out that Esther has related to Mordecai earlier, but we, we get him on a little more on the scene here, uh, finding out about a plot to kill the king. Uh, and he tells Esther to tell the king and all are saved, which is great. Uh, and this story will play a role in the storyline as we go. Yeah, so we see God again behind the scenes orchestrating these circumstances to elevate his people and his own name in Persia. And so we know that God is playing the long game. We we hear these kind of anecdotal stories and then we'll see what they turn into pretty soon. And then we're introduced to Haman who right away seems to have a, a bit of a power trip. Uh, he gets quite angry when this Mordecai guy doesn't bow down to him uh, and he blows a fuse about it. 
in, in such a way that's just it's so extreme where yeah. instead of calling for the death of just Mordecai uh, for not doing that, um, he decides to kill everybody that's part of Mordecai's clan, all these Jews. Um, and so likely Haman had some problem with the Jews before this moment uh, that it's not just Mordecai, but um, he brings accusations about the Jews and they're kind of unique. I mean, of the 127 provinces in the Persian Empire that are scattered about the whole um, the whole area, the whole group, um, and that they have laws, but no specific land. And, uh, somehow, even though they're scattered, I think Haman's here saying like, look, these guys have the audacity to have their own laws. Like they're spread about They They don't have a province. They don't have a, a state. Uh, if we were thinking about it in our kind of modern day, uh, they don't have their own Georgia or something like that. They don't have their own sort of people crew. They're scattered about. Um, and, and some of that stuff wouldn't really matter to the King. Uh, Persian, once again, Persian rule didn't seem to mind people groups and sort of some of their personal devotions. But that third accusation was really where uh, I think Haman's going to pin it on the, the the Jews of saying they don't worship the, the, the king. They don't bow down to the king's rules. And, um, and so some of this will come up again. Uh, but I, I think Haman's pointing um, in a direction that will make him seem um, uh, uh, tribal, uh, in terms of how he thinks about, uh, the world. Uh, and we're going to have a King interact with him that is thinking about the greatness of the plurality that is Persia. One of the things that Haman says is there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces. Their laws are different from those of every other people. So the Jews, while they are living in exile in Persia, have not assimilated so much that they are not, uh, that people don't notice. They are still different. They are still a set apart people living as exiles in these nations. And it's worth reflecting, can the same be said of, of us as Christians living where we live now? And Mordecai finds out about this desire to kill all the Jews, and he comes to Esther, who is sort of this heart-stopping request of her, and um, one that will maybe throw her safety uh, uh, into question. And so, but for the good of her nation, for the good of her people, she has to go to this king and tell him that not only she's a Jew, but to beg for her people's lives. And um, he actually sort of guilt trips her a little bit. I think there's a sort of a, a callback to Numbers 30 in some of the language by him, uh, which is sort of like uh, uh, instructions that if your spouse makes a vow and you disagree, but don't speak up about it, it's as if you agree with the vow that's made. And so um, I think uh, Mordecai here is kind of guilt tripping Esther a little bit, saying, look, you could do something or you could do some- nothing, but know that doing nothing is sort of condoning uh, the very acts of the king to genocide the Jews. And so, um, but it's great. Esther decides to have a fast for three days, calls the Jewish people, uh, Mordecai to communicate to the people to have a fast for three days, which once again, might be a bit counterintuitive for a woman who um, really is queen because of a, a bit of a beauty contest. Um, and and uh, to, to fast for three days would have not probably put her in sort of the most best of light in that moment. Um, but in a book that sort of feels like in some ways, a little bit of a chess game that Esther is playing with the King and Mordecai is trying to do as well. Um, to have this sort of moment in, in a book that is light on, um, God's presence explicitly. Um, and, um, even some of the questions of obedience explicitly to have a people that are scheming and planning to suddenly just stop in the storyline and just pray and fast, um, I think is, is indicative of what's really happening behind the scenes as part of the story. Mm. 
Yeah, one of the things Mordecai says to challenge Esther is if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And I think this is a question for us to reflect on too. God is inviting us to be part of the work that he's doing to further his kingdom today. And if we fail to act or uh, step in, God will intervene in another way. But it's good and a convicting reminder that our acts of obedience and faithfulness are invitation to be part of the work God is planning to do. Yeah. And so the king, Esther, uh, receives an audience with the king, and he says that she, he's willing to do everything. He's even willing to give her half the kingdom. And so what does she ask for? Is a dinner party. <laughs> she doesn't necessarily ask for her people yet. She doesn't kind of reveal everything yet. Um, but I, I think there's some scheming happening here. And But you got to remember, she's also watched Vashti be sort of be thrown out of uh, her role as queen uh, for seeking uh, um, a reasonable but self-oriented answer um, to, to request and uh, has maybe even crafted herself as this no, sort of non-specific queen. And now the question is, do, do I reveal that I care about my people? Does that put into question my loyalty to Persia versus my loyalty to my Israelite brethren and, and sisters? And so uh, all that kind of stuff. And so she throws a party. But the uniqueness here is she goes, I'm going to throw a party and I want Haman and you, the king, to be there. And the banquet is for him, which is very, very oddly vague and phrased in, in the Hebrew itself. Um, and, and later she's going to throw, a, once again, a party for them. And she doesn't use a descriptor of exactly who or what she's referring to. And it's even odd enough that she would invite Haman to the party to begin with. And, and at some point, this king can't sleep. And, and I wonder how the story is being crafted and the story is being telling and even the inv- invitation of Haman and how she's going to use Haman as like the patsy and the fall person at the end of the story. If, if the king is suspicious and wondering why Haman's invited to this party, is something going on with the two of them? Um, is the banquet for him and actually not for me as the king? Who's the banquet really for? And something that causes the king to, to sort of be restless in the storyline. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy over-the-top schmoozing. Yeah. And so, uh, but we find out that Haman also is up and can't sleep. He's preoccupied with killing Mordecai, um, while the king, I think, is preoccupied with questions around Haman. And so um, he's out and about at night um, scheming. We see Haman's pride continuing to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And this may be hyperbole. I feel like we see a lot of different extremes in this book. But it's really great storytelling because it's building us up to see how far he's going to fall when he falls. Yeah. And while awake, the king asked for this book of records, finds out long ago Mordecai had foiled the plot of assassins. uh, And the king's wondering, like, okay, like, has he ever been rewarded for his deeds? What have we done? And he hears Haman out and about in the courtyard and calls him in and, and basically asks the question of like, how, how does the king honor somebody? Um, and I think Haman thinks this is all about himself, that the king wants to honor Haman. And the way he describes it and the way the language works is Haman just totally describes how you honor a king, um, saying, look, and, and if Haman's thinking of himself of, I should be honored like a king and, and king, you should do all these things for me and make me treat me like a king um, in, in this with king this and king that. Um, and, and what would a suspicious king think at that moment? Uh, I think I think not only does he think Haman might want his wife, but Haman might want the crown. If he's already suspicious about this gathering that's happening. And so um, what's great is that he quickly goes, okay, um, Haman, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get Mordecai, and I want you to throw a, a parade, a festival for Mordecai, your mortal enemy. And at this moment, totally deflating whatever Haman's balloon is in his head of power and position uh, to be basically the 
the the parade leader for Mordecai who is going to be honored. Yeah, we're kind of seeing a big reversal here of the greatest becoming the least and the least becoming the greatest, uh, which we, of course, read a lot about in the New Testament. But one of the things Haman's wife and friends tell Haman is that, hey, if Mordecai is Jewish, he's not. you're not going to overcome him, Haman. So again, you can see that there's a reputation here and definitely some fear of God among the Persians as these Jews are living as exiles throughout the provinces. Yeah, maybe they're aware of... Daniel's history or uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some of the stories that have already gone around of ways that Persian kings have sort of worked against, uh, or Babylonian kings have tried to work against yeah, the Jews. Yeah, like watch out for the God of the Jews. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so let's jump to Revelation. Uh, we pick up uh, chapter four had been a uh, entrance of the king, sort of the throne moment, uh, and it had some parallels certainly to how... Um, how Caesar would have entered into a city in return, uh, to return to the city. And I think we're picking up on that. And the next set of progression would have been a reading of the scrolls, the accomplishments of that Caesar, and um, usually large, almost comically oversized scrolls to go, look at all the accomplishments of the Caesar. And I think there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek callback to Ezekiel 2 here when it says, and the scroll that's going to be read has writing all over it. It's on the front. It's on the back. The accomplishments of this king were so great that they're going to be read. There, there's so much to read. And so this sort of picture of Jesus being so much greater still uh, than the Caesars or any real power in the world. And who is worthy to open that? Um, a phrase that would have been um, actually written over Moses' seats in ancient synagogues is who's worthy to open the scroll? And also a question from Isaiah 29, who's worthy to do that? And the answer is the Passover lamb. This this vision that they would have certainly understood, the, the very symbol for revolution and deliverance under foreign rules. And and the lamb would be inspected by elders in the storyline in Genesis or in Exodus. And so the next thing that happens in the sequence is the elders approach the lamb um, and the prayers of the people are drawn up, which could be called back to Psalms in multiple ways. And usually Psalms like 141 or 16, where people are crying out for God for refuge or deliverance. And so, um, and throughout this section in the song, there's callbacks to, I think, Moses' song, Chronicles, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all this sort of stuff happening here of these people who um, the king has entered and the king is really also the Passover lamb, this the symbol of deliverance for his people. Uh, and the people are are just shouting out for joy, knowing that that deliverance and refuge is found in him. One of the things we see and encounter throughout the book of Revelation is just that people uh, are seeing God for who he is and responding to him in that way. And so we see here that when one is in the presence of God, they're going to accurately understand God's greatness and our smallness as, as his image bearers, as his created beings. And we see such a beautiful gospel presentation in this, that Christ is worthy by his death on the cross and his blood ransomed a people from the wrath of God for his glory. And that is why he alone is worthy to open that scroll. He's the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain. And then the section with the seven heel, seals, which we end up with also four horses. And um, I know we haven't read Zechariah 6 yet, but it certainly gets into some of that imagery of the four horses that match the exact colors on this passage. Um, and for people who are wondering if they should give up hope when all hope feels lost, when all when it feels like evil has won the day, they would hear this passage written to their ancestors that 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 who have made it through great persecution, who found rescue and redemption from God as sort of encouragement for them. And it starts with things like that 
are all too common. Um, one of the common phrases uh, for uh, Israel or for um, Rome or, or is around conquering, like vidi vidi vici, like I came, I saw, I conquered, or victory, peace, all these sort of ideas were like the the catchphrases of, of the people. And so uh, for the first one to be this white horse with an arrow and a crown, that's about conquering and about victory. That's very much a picture of Rome. Um, and then uh, we have a red horse, which maybe could have represented sort of the, the, the slaughter of war, the entertainment of the Romans, gladiators, arenas, coliseum, the art that's around sort of all this sort of understanding of, of blood and slaughter um, that, that Rome would also could have easily represented, um, which is still, I mean, I know I'm getting sort of really heavy in sort of the context of the, the first century people, but I think sometimes we read this book and we jump forward uh, a little too far to, to, to miss the point that these people would have immediately thought of some of these images and gone that direction. Now, does that mean those things can't still apply as believers today? Are we still in a battle between the, the ultimate evil of the world and sometimes that evil being represented by empires and culture and, and all these things that try to influence us and try to snuff out what is true and the ultimate hope and there's still a spiritual battle going on? Yes, of course. I, I think these principles still apply, but we should also go like, okay, we're not looking for necessarily like a very black horse to show up in this very way because we also know that that those those images and symbols are used in very metaphoric ways. And so like when we get to the black horse and it's talking about the grain supply and how much grain costs in that moment, guess what? We found historical records where that's that's the that's what it costs. Like building an empire is always done at a cost, and the price ends up being steep. And when there's a grain shortage in Rome, it ends up being staggering, and it costs that much. And uh, so we sort of hear that, and eventually sort of culminates in this sort of victory uh, with evil, and and this representation even of the Greek idea of Hades and death, and so um, the underworld, this this place of Rome's ultimate desire is not the Pax Romana and flourishing Rome's ultimate desire is death. And, mm-hmm. um, John's people, um, need to hear that, that life is found in Jesus. And even though death, even though Rome may take your life, that life ultimately is in Jesus. So those who are martyred, those who have gone before in the earthquakes and all the chaos that we've seen, it all has a purpose under God's kingdom and not just, um, not just Rome defeating good. And, and so in a world where, um, judgment is often, reserved for the oppressed and and wielded by the powerful john sort of reframes it and talks about a greater truth that 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 the judgment of god ultimately comes and applies to all people no matter who they are which would have been such a refreshing idea for them to hear i think as we see this curtain pulled back here too we are reminded again that god knows what's happening and god knows what will happen god is sovereign over this and in some ways he's appointing what is going to be happening in this cosmic and spiritual battle. And that is meant to encourage a persecuted church that whatever you are walking into, whatever you are facing, whatever tomorrow holds, God knows and we know how it ends. We continue to follow this theme of victory and that's included in this section. Yeah. And we get um, some numbering of the people of Israel, which once again, um, we've talked about this plenty before. The number's can be symbolic. They're not always, but in apocalyptic literature, they often are. And so 12 uh, was a historical number for God's people. Uh, a thousand often is the idea of sort of a complete or a total amount of things. So 12,000 of each of these people groups uh, is a complete and total amount of God's people are there. They're present. Like God has his people. Um, and so we should detect some maybe Ezekiel 45 overtones, which use similar numbers. Um, and Ezekiel will eventually move into the whole temple analogy, which John will do as well. So I think he he's setting this some of that up already. 
So as we see these people being sealed, we it kind of will cause us to reflect back on as well the covenant of circumcision. But now we are sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's people. And so we, as we see the wrath of God being released, we're again reminded that we're either sealed and protected from that wrath by the blood of the Lamb, or we will come under that wrath because we are covered by our own sin. Yeah, and then we sort of move into um, this picture of a fulfillment of, of one of Zechariah's prophecies, that this picture of all these nations streaming into Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, where people are in white robes or waving palm branches. That is full on a picture both from Zechariah and the practice of the the, the, the Feast of Booths. It was comment, singing the song of God's salvation. And, and so, um, and, and the images keep going where there's wiping away of every tear and stuff like that, which isn't found for the first time in Revelation. And we've, we've seen that already when we were reading through Isaiah and chapters like 25, 35, 51, 65, all these pictures and um, this fulfillment of what was promised, a reminder to the people again, we've been here before, we've suffered, we, we've been under the hand of wickedness before and, un, and wicked rulers and wicked kingdoms, and God has been faithful and delivered us and has been the victor over all the wickedness we've ever been. We've been here before. Rome is just another evil kingdom, and we are called to endure and to continue through until one day when victory is finalized. And so, um, and the same is true for us. Like, we, we all navigate and in different places. And sometimes I think we get lost in revelation because we're, we're in generally like a, a privileged group. Um, we, we are not deeply persecuted. Um, and so the, the, the conversation around enduring in the face of suffering is just not something most of us have much of a theological framework for. Uh, but for these people it is very much the, the hope that's being presented to them in extremely hard circumstances that they're called to endure uh, and that evil doesn't win at the end of the day. And so um, it's interesting because I think most of the readers would have read John and maybe looked backwards uh, at their history to talk about where they've been. And then it applies to the idea of hope. But too often, I think we're reading revolution as if it's some code book about the future. Um, And I don't think that's John's intention at all. It's really cool reading this section about this, the great multitude from every nation. And we've just read about all this difficult and painful destruction, but this multitude seems fairly unfazed by it. They continue to declare and worship God for his victory and salvation. And so uh, I'm going to probably sound redundant, but again, it gives us perspective that when persecution is abundant and things are really challenging, we can look to this multitude of worshiping believers and remember that God has the victory and that there will be a day that we are unfazed by the suffering we are now experiencing. It's like Paul talks about light and momentary troubles. We see it from a different angle or from a different perspective in the book of Revelation. Yeah. And, and so just to remind us where we've been, I mentioned last week a, a sort of a note uh, about um, the Olympics and maybe some of the parallels that John may be structuring his book around um, the sort of liturgy of the ancient Olympic Games. And so I'll include a PDF, but um, at this moment sort of is the end of the opening ceremonies where the trumpets will declare and then sort of real competition is about to take place of the competition between the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of, of right and good. Uh, and we're going to see sort of the book kind of go that direction. And so uh, the last thing that's supposed to happen is dec- sort of trumpets are played to sort of finalize sort of the opening ceremonies. And once again, we get dotted references all over the place of Malachi, Psalm 141, Ezekiel 38, all these sort of things. Joel is in there. Um, and, and it's all over um, the chapter eight into chapter nine. Um, 
and things that are mentioned are things that do happen in the history of Rome, particularly in the first century. There is famine at one point. There are all sorts of earthquakes. There's a disease that breaks out. There's war that happens, certainly against the Israelites themselves. And um, all these sort of things happen. And, um, and, and God is kind of making clear, like, look, the purpose of these things, like, are, are there, like, my judgments are there to warn mankind that to not ignore, like, I'm not going to ignore the defilement of my glory, like, and callous disregard for, for the mercy and the long suffering I've shown. And so his judgments have that role. And, and Sarah and I were just talking about it. And for, for a believer, they are sanctifying and preparing for something greater and good. But to those who don't trust in Jesus, they are like a foretaste, a, a taste of what ultimately will come that this, even this present suffering is not, um, not as great as will come, uh, if, if death comes and you don't put your faith in Jesus. And so, um, and so followers of Jesus may not be spared from the circumstances that, that God's wrath might bring upon the earth at that moment, but they will be spared from the ultimate wrath of God, uh, in eternity. And so, uh, sometimes that's a, that's a, a hard thing sometimes to parse out that we may suffer, but it has a very different purpose as to why we're suffering. Um, and then there's parallels all over uh, this chapter, the next chapter to um, Exodus. The plagues have some matches with the trumpets and the bowls and all this kind of stuff. And I think we're we're drawing back to the day where God ultimately brought a tremendous level of judgment to release His people from the wicked kingdom that was Egypt. And now he's, he's saying, look, that will come again. I will deliver my people and there will be a judgment, whether it's Rome, whether it's whatever the empire may be, um, that, that ultimately I will deal with the wickedness of this world. If we jump back to the beginning of chapter eight, we have this censer at the altar of God that actually is getting filled up with the prayers of the people. And in this yep. section, we see it being taken and hurled to the earth. All of these prayers that have been filling up the censer for ages since ancient times is finally being dumped out and poured out. And it's something I think about a lot when I pray. And it's an encouragement to you as well to continue to pray with faithfulness and persistence and perseverance. God hears every single prayer uh, that is prayed, you know, in order to give him honor. And we will see the fulfillment and the fruit of those prayers at some point. Yeah. I think I heard, um, maybe John Piper preach on that really well and talk about like, look, one day, like there's people that have prayed for persecution to go away and it never did. And people that prayed for safety and it never came and people that prayed for deliverance and it didn't happen in that moment. And yet one day there will be a full reversal of the history of the world in which things that were wicked, um, in, in, in the world site, um, will actually be true and right in God's side. The things that, uh, were wicked in God's side that the world said was fine will finally be judged. And, um, and it's, it's the right, a true and right judge. That's the ultimate thing you can hope for. And so, um, for people that, that never experienced, at least in their sort of flesh, um, in, in their body, that, um, the, the justice of God will finally get, justice. And and for people, once again, that are being persecuted, that may not actually see in their lifetime, things get reversed. It is such good news to hear, all right, your prayers are not in vain. And there will be a great reversal and a pouring out of those prayers and an answering to those prayers that God may be collecting them for a time when he decides to do that. Psalm 148. So we read about this command and the exhortation to praise the Lord, that people and creation should praise God. That's obviously a theme that we found in the book of Psalms, and it's it's valuable. 
Yeah, it's it's very much a, yeah. The, the full scope of creation is called to praise, and some of those are like polar opposites, like something peaceful and then something that's chaotic. But both are called to praise and reflect who God is. What about Psalm three? We read about how salvation begun, belongs to God, not those with power, like even we noticed in the book of Esther. And I really love how David talks here specifically about sleeping in peace and how God sustains him even at night. Yeah, it's, it's great because he has this sort of tension of he has this real urgent cry to help. Like he's not downplaying the, the urgency and the, the stress that it seems like he's feeling, but also he does go to sleep. He sort of has this trust in the midst of his urgency. All right, next week, what should we look out for? Well, as we wrap up Esther, I just encourage you to, you know, pause and write down, how did you see God at work? What was he doing here? And and what answer, unanswered questions do you still have? Where do you feel a lack of resolution? In it? And why do you think you're left with that lack of resolution in this story? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I always like to ask the question of like, why, why is this book here? Like, it, it is unique. And mm-hmm. same thing to ask about Ruth, same thing to ask about some other books like, um, or Job itself, or not Job, well, Job too, or, or Jonah. It's like, they feel odd compared to some other books in scripture. And so why would they be included? What does God want his people to, to know or remember by putting this book here at this time to tell this story that's happening in Persia? And and so what its role in the Bible? Uh, and then New Testament, let's keep exercising just sort of how to read apocalyptic literature muscle. So we get to the section on two witnesses. What might it be a call back to? Maybe they'd be characters that we certainly know about, maybe even characters that Jesus might have appeared with. And so, um, but, and why the double all over the place. Why 24 instead of 12 and things like that? Think through those kind of questions and those numbers. And and for people that expected one era of time to immediately turn into a new era of time and peace and prosperity, because that's, that's how Jews thought. It's like, as soon as the Messiah comes, everything's going to immediately be peaceful and prosperous. What might John be telling the, op- the audience by using sort of even this Olympic competition, maybe illusion through it all? All right. Yeah, and in the New Testament, I'd encourage you just to compare and contrast the kingdom of the world and the eternal kingdom of God in the next reading. There's a lot of scary things in the world that you're reading about, but how do God's people respond? How do kingdom people uh, work, and and what is God doing in these circumstances? Yep. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. (laughs) 